This is Speak Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from August 13th to the 26th. An awakening decades in the making. There are decades when nothing happens, and there are weeks when decades happen. Lenin. Introduction. The brutal murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis cops turned out to be the last straw for hundreds of thousands of people in the United States. A combination of circumstances, from the pandemic and the new economic crisis to systemic racism and years of rising inequality and more, converged to help shape a ticking time bomb of outrage, especially among the black population and young people. And George Floyd's murder just pushed everything to the edge, exploding into weeks of protests in cities and small towns in every state in the country and in major cities around the world. Social conditions in the U.S. have been deteriorating for over a decade, disproportionately impacting black people and imposing an increasingly uncertain future on most young people. The police have always terrorized the black population with almost complete immunity from prosecution. Systemic racism has degraded the lives of black people for generations, and many black youth regularly face the dual threat of being incarcerated or gunned down in the streets. At the same time, many young people in the U.S. have grown up with little to look forward to other than an adulthood of economic insecurity, drowning in debt. But even that grim future is threatened by an increasingly destroyed environment, accelerating towards total collapse. And, in contrast to a more hopeful atmosphere that the election of Barack Obama, the first black president, brought to many people, Those who came of age during the era of Trump have had to navigate a new climate of open nationalism and blatant xenophobia, coupled with a lingering anxiety about what will come next. And then a tornado, the COVID-19 pandemic, unleashed the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, as the U.S. government responded by protecting capital over human life. Millions of people lost their jobs in a matter of weeks, with no sign of things getting better. Those who continued working had to fight for safer working conditions. This pandemic has ripped the mask off the capitalist system in the U.S. and revealed its priorities for all to see. The relentless violence of this system, the callous preservation of profit at any cost, the conscious contempt for human life, all are hallmarks of this system. It is too soon to tell where all of this will lead, but there is no question that tens of thousands of people have already been transformed by their experiences. In a matter of a few short weeks, suddenly a generation-defining social movement could be taking shape. We will see if the working class is finally drawn out of a long slumber and into what could be a powerful movement. 
a movement on a scale not seen for years. George Floyd was murdered on May 25, 2020, and the horrifying videos of his killing were released soon after. Three days later, a Minneapolis police station was burned to the ground by protesters. Within a week of Floyd's death, protests were spreading into major cities and small towns across the country. In one single day, on June 6th, over half a million people turned out in nearly 550 different demonstrations across the United States. As of June 12th, there were protests in over 2,000 different cities and towns, with multiple protests in big cities happening at the same time, drawing thousands of people. With no schools in session, students home from college, very few people working, and many people fed up with shelter in place, untold numbers of people were free and eager to participate in rallies and demonstrations in every part of the country. Demonstrations of solidarity have taken place in over 60 countries and on every continent except Antarctica. Curfews were imposed in over 30 cities. The National Guard was called out in over 35 states, deploying more than 17,000 troops across the country, more U.S. soldiers than are currently in Iraq and Afghanistan. More than 10,000 people have been arrested. More than 12 people, mostly black men, have been killed one shot by the National Guard, others shot at or near protests, some by individuals on the far right. Many small towns reported protests for the first time ever. A town like Beatrice, Nebraska, for example, with a population of 12,000, 95% of whom are white, was the site of several protests by dozens of young people who were never active before. Protests have taken place in small towns like this in every state and in some of the most conservative counties in the country. Three weeks after George Floyd's murder, an estimated 26 million people had participated in protests, with an average age under 30 years old, and over 50% of people participating in protest for the first time in their lives. The majority of protests have not been called by organized groups, but have arisen out of a generalized discontent and have been called by individuals spontaneously using social media, the majority of whom have never done anything like this before in their lives. Everywhere, the participants reflect the general demographics of young people in these communities, and there have been protests with people of all ages, from toddlers to grandparents. The diverse and multi-generational nature of the protests reveals a real awakening happening in this country, an awakening to the reality of the brutal racist conditions that black people have faced for centuries. And this awareness has led to the mass mobilization behind the banner Black Lives Matter and the refusal to tolerate the racism of this society along with the brutality of the police any longer. The potential for this period to unleash a deep-seated anger in the population has certainly not been lost on the ruling class. Senior Democratic Party politicians, along with local city officials, have rushed in to promise changes to policing and makeovers to their cities as they remove monuments and various commemorations of slavery and racism. Large corporations have urgently responded by trying to remove overtly racist products and practices. These politicians and leaders are ready to promise reforms if it will get people to give up and get out of the streets and once again accept solutions offered within the framework of bourgeois democracy. 
On the other hand, as Democrats have tried to seem sympathetic, the Trump administration, along with many Republicans, have pushed in an opposite direction, deciding to demonize protesters as terrorists and thugs. Thus far, Trump has staked his re-election on opposing protests, defending racist monuments, and sending federal officers into a variety of cities to bolster law enforcement. In a few short weeks, changes that were once deemed impossible have been wrenched from this system. In the past, politicians could get away with calling for police department investigations and making promises of getting rid of bad officers. But this movement has made these promises obsolete. These protests have already forced the firing of police officers and the resignations of several police chiefs. The mayor of Minneapolis now has a hard time showing his face in public without being denounced. The Democratic Party politicians have proposed a new legislation to make police misconduct more transparent. Many cities have passed bans on chokeholds and other practices of excessive force. The governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, passed a legislation requiring local officials to work with community members to change police practices. Minneapolis city officials proposed to dismantle the police department, supposedly creating something new, and many politicians have begun to make promises of funding cuts to police departments. Protests have toppled dozens of monuments commemorating Confederate generals and others who represent slavery and the entrenched racism of this society. Now politicians have begun to promise to remove their offensive statues and to rename institutions named after racists. Trump and others have denounced the removal of these landmarks in order to appeal to reactionary forces. All of these changes are significant, not because they transform society in any lasting way, but because they were unthinkable just a short time ago. They are important because they have demonstrated to an entire generation that change is not won through endless visits to the ballot box, but by mobilizing in large numbers. It has shown people that their willingness to rise up is a real threat to the functioning of society. Together, these changes and promises will have little impact on the functioning of the police. The role of the police as the front lines of the violence to defend the system is not changing. The main purpose of these reforms is to get the protests to cool down and to convince people that the system is still capable of addressing people's grievances. The ruling class is well aware that when those illusions are shattered, the path to an even more powerful movement can open up quickly. But what is clear is that this movement has given hundreds of thousands of people a new experience that cannot be easily forgotten. Many have uncovered a contagious hope in this extremely dismal time. And regardless of whether this current wave of protests subsides, there is likely more to come. The COVID Catalysts This pandemic has turned up the heat on a society already simmering with anger. The official response to the pandemic can be summarized in one comment by Trump. The cure can't be worse than the disease. Trump was making explicit that the usual neglect for workers' lives under capitalism would continue unabated during the pandemic. For two months after the first identified case, the U.S. government did nothing to contain the virus, didn't even produce a working test. And once the lethal impact of the virus was undeniable, the authorities basically gave up mounting anything close to an appropriate response. Those in positions of power have done little or nothing to contain the virus in the interests of keeping their economies as open as possible. 
And even by the end of July, as many other countries were able to get the virus under control, in the U.S., the virus is raging on, with over 4 million infections and over 150,000 dead with no end in sight. And into this nationwide vacuum of neglect and abandonment, working people had no choice but to respond. Healthcare workers created their own makeshift protective equipment, requisitioned their own supplies, and organized walkouts and demonstrations against unsafe conditions. In the wealthiest country in the world, nurses were forced to use trash bags as protection, with some later reprimanded for it. Thousands of living rooms turned into makeshift sewing factories as people focused their efforts to making and donating masks to protect health care and other workers. Workers at Amazon, Instacart, Whole Foods, Walmart, and many other food and delivery companies organized protests and walkouts. By the end of April, there were over 150 walkouts, sickouts, or rallies of workers across the country in many different industries, from healthcare to meatpacking and more. The possibility of a working class fight back seemed to be increasing. The economic crisis resulting from this pandemic has been deeper and more rapid than anything before it. In the first three weeks, unemployment claims hit 17 million, the highest three-week total ever recorded. By the end of July, over 55 million people had filed for unemployment. A record wave of bankruptcies of both large and small businesses is still to come crashing down. With so many out of work and in need of food across the country, food banks with lines that stretch for miles began running out of food by midday as the number of people on food assistance had more than doubled. And soon, when government legislation temporarily restricting evictions of those who cannot afford to pay rent will have expired, millions of working families could face the threat of being thrown out into the streets. If poor and working families weren't already outraged, this misery was enough to push them closer to the edge. Overall, from the federal level down to the states and cities, politicians have showed their allegiance to the ruling class, putting the needs of the economy above the health and safety of workers and their families. What has been made abundantly clear is that their system will not protect working people whose future is now in our hands. An Accumulation of Social Decay Before the U.S. government allowed this pandemic to further rip the country apart, the last decade in the United States has seen a series of attacks on the working class amidst skyrocketing inequality. Any increases in national income since the 2008 crash has gone to the richest 1% of the population. Today, the average CEO in the U.S. receives 312 times the average worker's wage and the cost of this transfer of wealth has been paid by deep cuts to workers' pensions and health benefits, cuts to social services and education, massive layoffs, and the replacement of full-time benefited jobs with low-paid, part-time, and temporary ones. For most workers, getting by means going into debt and living paycheck to paycheck with almost no savings to fall back on. Almost half of Americans say they couldn't afford $400 for an unexpected expense like a medical bill. The average American household is a record $140,000 in debt. About 40 million people live in poverty, which includes 15 million children. At the same time, there has been a steady rise in homelessness in major cities. While workers' wages haven't been going up, 
the cost of healthcare and housing, and just about everything else has. For many workers, life in America has become a never-ending nightmare of stress and insecurity. This misery can be seen in the record numbers of suicides and drug overdoses per year, a 40% increase since 2007, about 132 suicides per day. It has shown up in a declining life expectancy in recent years. It's become visible in the record number of people living in their vehicles, unable to afford a real place to live. And for millions of retired workers, it has meant searching for a new job because they either don't have a pension or their pensions don't provide enough to live on. A system of enduring racism. For black people in the U.S., this American nightmare has become unbearable. The impact of systemic racism on the black population can be seen in every aspect of life, from poverty to unemployment to incarceration and education. Nearly every health outcome is disproportionately worse for black people. Black people are twice as likely to live in poverty as white people, twice as likely to be unemployed, twice as likely to die by suicide, and black women are twice as likely to give birth to preterm babies. Black neighborhoods are the most polluted in the U.S., and black people are three times more likely to die from asthma-related causes than white people. The racism of U.S. society has maintained stark segregation and inequality in schools, with many schools more segregated by race today than any time after 1967, during the Civil Rights Movement. High school dropout rates are almost double for black students compared to white students, and the gap is about the same for college graduation rates. In 2017, one study showed that 37% of black adults in Chicago, ages 20 to 24, were neither working nor in school. That number was only 5.7% for whites. Black people are regularly targeted by law enforcement. They are killed by police more than twice as often as white people, almost always with no consequences for the police. They are more likely to be stopped by the police have guns pulled on them, or be arrested than white people are. All of this while black people are less likely than white people to have drugs on them when searched by police. And black people are only 13% of the U.S. population and are 38% of the prison population and are about five times more likely to go to prison than whites. And now the coronavirus pandemic has further exposed the racism of U.S. society. Black Americans have the highest mortality rate from COVID-19 and are 2.3 times more likely to die from the virus than white Americans. They are more likely to suffer from pre-existing conditions that worsen the outcomes from the virus. They are more likely to work in essential industries that did not shut down during the pandemic, like grocery stores, delivery, transportation, and healthcare, which have the highest rates of infection. Even George Floyd, a security guard, was confirmed to have had COVID-19 through his autopsy. It's not just the brutal murder of George Floyd that has led people into the streets. It's the decades of dreams deferred by poverty, incarceration, degradation, and relentless brutality and murder at the hands of police that has been unleashed in this moment. Racism in this country is as old as the nation itself and as pervasive as it has ever been. It is not simply the remaining residue of past centuries and recurring failures to fully address it. 
It remains because it's an indispensable part of U.S. capitalism and a powerful tool to obstruct people from seeing their common interests and standing together to fight for a better world. But today, with these protests, its capacity to obstruct could be waning, especially as the situation for the entire working class continues to worsen. Further aggravated by Trump. Trump's presidency has been a constant promotion of racist, sexist, and xenophobic hatred. All of the underlying features of social disintegration have only been further aggravated and made more unbearable by this administration, like salt in a wound. His presidency has helped reinvigorate far-right groups, repeatedly and openly encouraging white supremacists. When neo-Nazis gathered in Charlottesville in 2017, Trump made sure to call some of them, quote, very fine people. His first tweet after protests against George Floyd's murder was, quote, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, openly inviting attacks on protesters by the police or right-wing forces. And amidst widespread protests against racism and police brutality, Trump chose Tulsa, Oklahoma as the location of his first re-election campaign rally the site of a 1921 race riot where mobs of white people brutally attacked and killed an estimated 300 black people and burned 35 square blocks of one of the richest black communities in the country to the ground. Trump added insult to injury by choosing June 19th to hold his rally, a day that commemorates the end of slavery and celebrates the struggles of black people in this country. There's no question he was hoping his rally could be a rallying cry for racists around the country, but the power of people in the streets forced him to move his rally to the following day. Trump continues to appeal to some sections of the working class, even though his policies are, in reality, a systematic attack on the lives of all working people. His presidency has further accelerated income inequality through tax cuts for corporations and the rich amounting to an estimated $4 trillion. The military budget has continued to increase to all-time highs while federal funding for many social programs have been cut. Environmental destruction has intensified. Anti-immigrant policies have expanded, including life-threatening conditions for those incarcerated in detention facilities. The Bankruptcy of the Democratic Party Throughout the Trump administration, Democrats have done little to actively oppose his policies, criticizing them in speeches, but doing next to nothing to really oppose them. This is not a significant change. It was their failure to respond to the needs of the majority of people during the Obama administration that helped pave the way for Trump in the first place. Obama was elected through a wave of enthusiastic voters expecting improvements in their lives and society. Instead, people ended up poorer, more in debt, more surveilled, more policed, living in a more militarized society, working more hours and multiple jobs to survive, and surviving on a planet facing increasing destruction. For eight years, the Obama administration deepened the attack on the working class, overseeing the largest transfer of wealth to banks and corporations in the nation's history. As military budgets expanded, austerity was imposed on most social services from education to health care. The environment was not better protected under the Democrats, who expanded fossil fuel extraction and oil exports and increased CO2 emissions. 
and the worst aspects of Trump's anti-immigrant policy had their roots in the Obama administration, who increased deportations of immigrants to about 3 million in total, the highest of any administration. In the last two years of his administration, after the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests swept the country, Obama oversaw the fastest increase in the militarization of the police, spending roughly $2.2 billion on military equipment for police departments. And just like Trump, Obama too referred to protesters as criminals and thugs. And today, as the new crisis ravages the lives of working people, all that the Democrats can point to as a solution to these problems is a vote for Joe Biden, who stands for every betrayal of the Obama administration and has nothing to offer except that he is not Donald Trump. These protests did not come out of nowhere. The last 12 years of intensified attacks on the population brought with them episodes of outrage and resistance that helped pave the way to the present situation. The young people that have been in the streets today grew up during this period, many of them participating in these prior struggles. They are the generation that grew up with the first wave of Black Lives Matter protests. They are the students who protested Trump, who spoke out about sexual violence, who demanded a society that can keep them safe from gun violence. They are the children of immigrants and other minorities enraged by the racism of this society. They are a new generation of youth who find themselves with no choice but to stand up to the destruction of the planet and the threatened erasure of their futures. During the Obama years, there were ongoing protests against the class priorities exposed during the 2008 recession and the bailouts that followed, culminating in the Occupy Wall Street movement. In 2014, there were explosive protests after Mike Brown, Eric Garner, Freddie Gray, and too many other black people were again brutally killed by police. A wave of street rebellion and protests across the country, buildings burned, and stores were looted as armored vehicles roamed the streets. It was during this time that Black Lives Matter became a symbol for standing up to racism and police violence. Immediately following Trump's election, many protests erupted involving tens of thousands of high school-aged youth chanting, Not My President! Similar protests erupted in response to Trump's frequent racist remarks and policies of attacking immigrants and Muslims. In response to the pervasive violence against women in society, there were massive rallies and marches for women's rights, with hundreds of thousands of people eventually symbolized by the hashtag MeToo. This movement has not only taken down dozens of high-profile sexual predators, but it has also helped to draw attention to the ongoing violence and discrimination against LGBTQ people. Young people have intensified their protests against the destruction of the environment, starting during the Obama administration and continuing under Trump's presidency, helping to shape a new generation of climate activists. Like Swedish teenager Greta Thunberg, Many of these young people have begun to question the very purpose of the path laid out for them, studying only to integrate into a society that promises them no future. The Sanders campaign in 2016 became an outlet for many young people. It succeeded in raising people's expectations about the kind of society they wanted to live in. But these hopes were dashed as Sanders lost a second time to Biden in 2020 further weakening some people's illusions in the electoral system. Taken together, 
These movements have played a profound role in shaping a new radical consciousness among millions of young people. They have helped normalize protest and resistance. They have highlighted the pervasive problems of this society and helped further expose the bankruptcy of the Democratic Party. These protests have certainly not led to a revolutionary consciousness of young people, but they reveal a deep outrage at the status quo, a feeling of urgency for change, and an awareness of the importance to resist. Where can this lead? It is very possible that the mobilization of the considerable apparatus of the Democratic Party and their connections to the churches, unions, and other organizations may be able to once again channel this anger into an election campaign, this one to bring down Trump. It just might be enough of a distraction to temporarily dampen people's willingness to take to the streets. But even if this does happen and protests subside for some time, this won't be the end. Rebellions and protests will return, just like the pandemic. There will be more waves. For young people, none of the problems that have radicalized them so far have any prospects of going away. Their futures have only grown even more uncertain in this period. Whatever little hope and education may have once offered, it is rapidly disappearing as schools close and move classes online while more jobs disappear. For the black population, the pandemic has only intensified an already untenable situation. Who knows what the final death toll will be if it ever ends. And despite the much promised reforms, the role of the police in capitalist society is not changing. They will continue to defend this system through violence and continue to terrorize the black population. Will this anger impact the working class and end its decades-long passivity, drawing them out into the current struggle? What will happen when workers see that the unemployment is here to stay? What will happen when rents become due and the threat of eviction is shoved in workers' faces? What will happen when frontline workers become exhausted, when healthcare and transportation and food and delivery workers are pushed further to the edge? What will happen as state and local municipalities increasingly face revenue shortages because there is far less income to be taxed and once again begin to impose aggressive austerity cuts? How will the ruling class address the problems of this system that are now exposed for all to see? How long can the working class go on enduring this misery? Trump is sounding his racist and nationalist alarm to attempt to get white workers to close ranks around him and some are gathering at his events, proudly not wearing masks, which has now come to symbolize Trump's ongoing attempt to downplay the threat of the virus. Certainly most black and Latino workers who are more conscious of the deep injustices of this society will not be attracted by Trump's demagoguery. And it is now uncertain whether those white workers who were previously attracted to Trump's anti-establishment rhetoric will still follow him. With the continued spread of the virus and the increased levels of unemployment impacting the entire working class, those white workers who rallied around Trump are being deeply impacted. The question is where or against whom will the anger be directed? Will they be able to see their place in this movement? Today, young people are the catalysts for this movement. The multiracial composition of recent demonstrations may serve to begin to bridge the divide that exists in the working class. And if the working class begins to confront the crisis it faces,
we can expect mobilizations that could finally go beyond episodic protests in the streets and engage the social force necessary to transform society. A revolutionary working class organization could play an important role in such a movement, but no such organization exists today in the U.S. It must still be built. The relatively small number of individual revolutionary militants that do exist in the U.S. today are scattered in different parts of the country and often have very little connection to the working class. But the period ahead could open up the possibilities for them to forge connections in the working class as well as open up the connections for the formation of new revolutionary militants, both necessary steps on the road to constructing a real revolutionary working class organization. Steve Bannon's Border Wall, a scam on top of a scam. Last week, Trump's former senior advisor Steve Bannon was charged with fraud for pocketing donations of a private fundraising campaign that claimed to help Trump build more sections of a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. Bannon and his partners raised $25 million from hundreds of thousands of donors, promising it would be spent on new sections of wall. By the time he was arrested, Bannon had already spent a million of it to subsidize his own absurdly extravagant lifestyle. The irony here is that Bannon's We Build the Wall campaign was already a scam anyway. The entire initiative to build the wall in the first place is based on the racist and utterly unfounded idea that immigrants from Mexico are the cause of the United States' problems. The truth is, the whole political ideology of the far right has always been one huge scam. It's a scam that promises working people who have U.S. citizenship that they will be free and prosperous if they stab their brothers and sisters in the back. It's a scam that says, leave the real cause of your problems, the capitalist system, alone. Help us keep the poor and working class of the world divided, thereby depriving yourself of any chance of actually making your lives better. And for that small price, you get to call yourself white or a man or an American and pretend you're better than everyone else. It's the same old racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic scam that's as old as capitalism itself. The only thing that's new this time is that Bannon was scamming people who were already buying into the scam. Schools forced to choose, learn remotely or risk lives. As the school year begins, some states and districts have made the unhappy but smart decision to start the school year remotely. In other states and districts that have reopened irresponsibly, including districts in Indiana, Georgia, and Florida, infections were found almost immediately, and in some cases, hundreds of students had to quarantine, while fewer students attended in person and some schools closed. The situation seems to change daily. As COVID, forces the reversal of risky decisions. But teaching remotely brings its own problems. Getting physical books to students is a logistical challenge. Many working class students still do not have necessary computer and Wi-Fi technology. Some don't want their homes and family members to be visible to virtual classmates or may barely have spaces for themselves to do schoolwork. Looking at 20 plus student peers on a screen is mind numbing. Attendance is an issue again, and when students don't show up, teachers are pushed to call homes endlessly, in some cases filling in Google spreadsheets to prove to everyone looking that they've done their job. 
and the increase in virtual classroom use may even be affecting the supply of virtual space. When a charter chain in Newark tried to conduct classes Monday, they couldn't get through the day because Zoom was overwhelmed from the nationwide demand. We are between a rock and a hard place. We can either risk our lives and the safety of the society to learn in person, or we can tolerate and trudge through the inhumane remote learning environment. It is clear that choosing safety is the right choice in the face of a deadly and highly contagious virus. But we should ask the question, how is it that we got between this rock and this hard place? A society can't make safe, fair, and sane decisions on health and education, even in a difficult situation, is fundamentally screwed up. We don't just need to replace the people in charge, but we need to go beyond and challenge the system itself. Tech companies are in it for themselves. As tens of millions find their financial situation more desperate by the day, and millions of small businesses are squeezed into failure, the big tech companies are booming. Stocks of Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Google, Microsoft, and Facebook rose 37% in the first seven months of this year, while all other stocks fell a combined 6%. Those five companies now constitute 20% of the stock market's total wealth. And Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos' wealth has increased dramatically in the past months to an estimated $189 billion. But don't the tech companies make our lives better? Doesn't Google help many of us every day? Hasn't Amazon kept millions safer by minimizing our need to shop in person? Yes, thanks to the labor of their workers. But the problem is that those who run these corporations are in a constant drive to maximize profits at the expense of all other concerns. That means if Amazon has to put its workers in danger to get customers our packages, it will do so. It means that if Facebook decides to prioritize bots or fake news, fueling the rise of crazy violent conspiracy theories, it will do so. It means that if Apple works its workers in China so hard they are driven to suicide, then it will do so. And since many school systems are now using Google Classroom, it means that Google has access to all kinds of school and student data, including lessons, assessments, records of teacher contacts with students' families, all dated by the minute. School districts are essentially handing over the data of students and education workers to one of the most invasive and powerful corporations on earth. Without democratic control by workers and consumers of what these companies produce, how they produce it, and for what purpose, these corporations just do what they want. They are part of an entire system built on an insatiable drive for profits with little or no concern for their effects on the working class. Politicians' attacks on the U.S. Postal Service are not new. In recent months, the United States Postal Service, USPS, has been attacked repeatedly by the Trump administration. Part of Trump's motivation is to create a crisis around mail-in voting. Trump thinks mail-in ballots will hurt him in the election. But there is a much more basic drive behind attacks on the post office, which have been going on for decades. Private instructors and private delivery companies like UPS and FedEx think they can make a lot more money if they can break up or downsize the post office. 
Their strategy is to force it into bankruptcy and then turn it into a private company. This strategy is called privatization. This sector of the delivery industry, also known as logistics, has grown rapidly in recent decades. A good part of the growth of the private companies comes from the fact they pay less for combined wages and benefits and work their workers to the point of exhaustion. While working conditions at USPS can be brutal, many postal workers have better conditions in some ways than, for example, the part-time workers at companies like UPS. There are many new companies clustered around the industry giants UPS and FedEx, and competition is fierce. Increasingly, the USPS has to compete with these companies, although it also is required to subsidize them with cheap rates when it performs some parts of these companies' delivery operations, such as some residential service that UPS and FedEx would find more expensive to do themselves. Even though the use of technology like email has largely replaced mailing letters, the USPS still has more than $71 billion in revenues in fiscal year 2019. This makes the post office an attractive target for the private delivery companies and investors eager to make more profit if they can get the post office out of the way. For more than 200 years, the government-run post office was the way most packages and mail got delivered to people and businesses. The post office got support from taxes and postage rates were relatively low. The post office wasn't required to make a profit. However, private profit-making companies like UPS began decades ago to find ways to profitably compete with the post office in the package and overnight mail sector of the market. In this drive to undermine the post office, they've been helped by the government at key moments. The first step came in 1970 when a bipartisan majority in Congress eliminated all direct government financial support for the post office, meaning that all its operations would have to be funded from charges for services. Postal workers had just won a strike and the government didn't want to provide any tax money for higher wages and better benefits for unionized postal workers. This law also locked in the practice of using revenue from first-class mail to subsidize business mail. It also meant the post office didn't have the money to start offering services based on the new communications technology like email. Consequently, as email grew and there was a corresponding decline in first-class mail, it became inevitable that the post office's finances would deteriorate. The biggest blow came in 2006 when the George W. Bush administration and Congress passed an unprecedented bill with bipartisan support. 95% of Republicans and Democrats voted in favor of it. Despite their recent displays of outrage over the attacks on the Postal Service, Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, and many other current Democrats in Congress voted for this bill. The new law required the post office to prepay all the estimated health and retirement benefits its employees would receive, 75 years ahead of schedule. This has caused the post office to fall deeply into debt, setting up the possibility of bankruptcy. If the post office can be forced into bankruptcy, the fact that it has prepaid all its workers' benefits makes it an extremely attractive candidate for privatization, which seems to be the outcome Trump is shooting for. The bill, the Postal Accountability and Enhancement Act, required the Postal Service to get rid of its normal pay-as-you-go retirement plan, which was working fine. 
Instead, the Postal Service was now required to calculate all of its expected employee pension costs over the next 75 years and then put away enough money between 2007 and 2016 to cover the expected pension costs. This was an insane requirement, and all it did was drain Postal Service funds. Between 2007 and 2016, the USPS lost $62.4 billion, the majority of that from the requirement of pre-funding the pensions. At the end of 2019, the USPS had $160.9 billion in debt. Similar attacks on Postal Service funding continued under the Obama administration, always with bipartisan support. In 2011, the Obama administration's federal budget forced the Postal Service to repay the federal government $6.9 billion from the retiree health benefits account, ridiculously claiming the federal government overpaid the Postal Service during a period it was undergoing unprecedented cuts. The impact of the bill was expected to accelerate the planned closure of about 3,700 Postal Service facilities. Since 2009, the Postal Service has cut over 126,000 positions, most of which occurred during the years of the Obama administration. Workers at the post office are mobilizing in 2020 to protect their job security against the threat of bankruptcy and privatization. The postal unions are demanding the government pass a short-term subsidy to stave off a collapse. However, necessary right now, a short-term financial fix for the post office won't end the crisis, only slow it down. Postal workers will have to find ways to challenge the system at a more basic level. Challenging the idea that everything in our society should be organized around making a profit. If they decide to take that challenge on, they will find that a lot of people who don't work for the post office are asking the exact same question and might be surprised at the support they get. Women's Suffrage, 100-Year Anniversary August 18th marked the 100-year anniversary of ratifying the 19th Amendment, granting women the right to vote in America. This legacy is one of collective struggle and shows the power of the suffragettes' organizing efforts, which forced President Woodrow Wilson Congress, and three-fourths of state legislatures to pass this historic amendment. One hundred years after this amendment, there's still a lot of fighting and organizing to be done. Women in America are facing many problems, like inequality in pay, zero paid time off for maternity leave for many workers, and high rates of sexual violence and sex trafficking. Currently, U.S. women are paid 81.6 cents for every dollar a man would make doing the same job. And these inequalities are even more dramatic for Black, Indigenous, trans, disabled, and other minority women. So for this anniversary, let's celebrate the gains won by the efforts of past suffragettes, but let's also focus on the struggle we need to keep waging. Wisconsin shooting, another racist cop attack. On Sunday, police in Kenosha, Wisconsin, shot an unarmed black man at least seven times in the back as his three children sat in the back seat of his car. As we write, despite being shot at point-blank range, 29-year-old Jacob Blake is still alive and in stable condition, 
Although, on the morning of August 25th, Blake's father announced that Blake was paralyzed from the waist down due to his wounds. We don't yet know if Jacob Blake will be able to recover from this condition or if his paralysis is permanent. But whatever happens, it doesn't change the fact that the police are a violent and racist institution. Furious crowds of protesters took to the streets of Kenosha. The governor sent in the National Guard. Although more details will undoubtedly surface in the coming days, it is clear that once again, police officers escalated a situation to the point of gunfire and could not exercise even minimal control over their itchy trigger fingers. One would think that after the massive outrage at the death of George Floyd in May, police would at least think about ways to control themselves or to avoid being involved in murderous situations, if not because they actually care, but because maybe they simply don't want to get caught. This demonstrates clearly that the police as an institution cannot do even that. As enforcers of the capitalist system and as the protectors of private property, police officers will continue to engage in conflicts with an oppressed population disproportionately Black and Latinx, but almost always working class, and will continue to be unable to hold themselves back from what can only be described as murder. In a capitalist economy, where less than 1% dominates the rest of us, police are what they are. We would be foolish to continue thinking otherwise. And the people who protested in Kenosha were right to show their outrage. Safety net with huge holes. Alameda Health System attacks healthcare workers. Report from a healthcare worker. For months now, we've heard the government and bosses call healthcare workers heroes, angels, brave warriors, etc. But what we have also seen is an across the board attack on the working conditions of those very same workers. At Alameda Health System hospitals in the SF Bay Area, which includes Highland Hospital, the largest safety net hospital in the East Bay, the union contract expired in March of this year and workers have since been fighting for a new one. So far, the administration has threatened to freeze wages, cut benefits, and make workers pay for 10% of the health benefits that have so far been free. They are also proposing to cut holiday pay for 12-hour employees so they can only get eight hours of pay trying to make layoffs easier by ignoring seniority rules and proposing a new method of shift cancellation, which would allow management to inform workers that their shift is canceled up to a minute before they have to clock in. These are just a few of the dozens of other takeaways. AHS is excusing all of these attacks by bringing up the over $300 million deficit on which they are operating. AHS has been borrowing money from Alameda County for years and has failed to pay it back several times. Of course, at no point did workers have any say in how this debt was accumulated. What we can see is that while workers did not create this disaster, they are going to be forced to pay for it by the administration. This time of crisis has shown what the capitalist bottom line is in all industries continuing to make profit at the expense of risking the lives of the workers who create this profit with their labor. The pandemic has shown just how valuable our labor really is. It's time for healthcare workers to fight back and not fall down 
the gaping holes of this false safety net. Fire, climate catastrophe at home. Climate change is bringing what scientists and environmentalists have warned about for decades, violent environmental events that pose huge problems for humanity. A massive heat dome hovering over the southwest of the United States is causing record-breaking temperature spikes in California. Triple-digit temperatures have been recorded across the state concerning health experts who remember a similar heat wave that caused thousands of hospitalizations in 2006. Napa beat its previous record from over 100 years ago, reaching 103 degrees Fahrenheit, while Death Valley hit a scorching 130 degrees Fahrenheit. As temperatures climbed, a rare electrical storm caused by increased moisture and a heat from a tropical storm 1,000 miles away hit the hot, dry state, sparking massive wildfires. Year after year of high temperatures and low precipitation were combined with the storm to spark intense fires that spread rapidly on the dry terrain. The smoke created by these fires has polluted the air, leaving many in the impossible situation of baking in the heat at home or breathing toxic fumes outdoors. But the heat and fires aren't the only thing Californians have to worry about. On Friday, August 14th, hundreds of thousands of residents were told they would lose power in the coming days due to a lack of energy supply. Normally, electrical grids have emergency plans and backup generators for such events. At the very least, they should be able to give advance notice of coming shortages with proper monitoring. None of that happened. Instead, several of the backup electricity generators failed, and neighboring states, which typically are able to send additional power, didn't have any to spare. And, since no one predicted it, no contingency plan was in place. This shouldn't be a surprise. The California energy system has been declining for decades. In the 1990s, the state's electrical grid was broken up and sold off to private interests, who made extra money jacking up prices and using the system for speculation and trading. The result is a broken system incapable of coordinating and preparing for emergencies, repeatedly putting profits before maintenance and safety. California Governor Gavin Newsom has criticized those in charge of the grid for mismanagement. He made a big show calling for an investigation into the problem, but many of those he criticized were appointed by him in the first place. He has taken no concrete steps to resolve the underlying issues that caused this crisis. The systemic failures go beyond the energy grid. Cal Fire, the state fire agency, has been unable to contain the 600 wildfires sparked by electrical storms. This is because the state cuts costs every chance it gets. One cost-cutting program uses inmates to fight fires, paying them only a dollar an hour. These prisoners work some of the most dangerous tasks climbing through rough terrain, with no chance of getting a job in the field later on. They are brutally exploited and heartlessly exposed to death by fire. But now, because prisoners have experienced a deadly wave of coronavirus infections, some of those that would usually work in the program have been released from prison in hopes of avoiding further outbreaks. The state has a capacity to exploit 3,400 inmate firefighters, but currently has only deployed 1,306. If the state was more focused on safety than on cost-cutting, we might be in a better position. This system brings us crisis after crisis, 
piling one on top of the other to create the flaming garbage heap currently engulfing California. As of Saturday night, August 22nd, 119,000 people have had to evacuate their homes due to over 1 million acres having caught fire, with five dead. Over 200,000 people have had to deal with rolling blackouts. The climate crisis has come home, and in response, the system is only adding fuel to the flames. This is life in the capitalist nightmare. The Height of Hypocrisy Biden quotes civil rights leader Ella Baker. At the Democratic National Convention, Joe Biden began his nomination acceptance speech with a quote from the civil rights activist Ella Baker. Quote, give people light and they will find a way, unquote. Unlike Joe Biden, Ella Baker was not a politician. She was an activist and organizer for change. She was active from a young age in the NAACP before helping Martin Luther King and other civil rights leaders from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, in 1957, one of the most influential organizations in the civil rights movement, which she helped direct. But Baker disagreed with the SCLC's top-down leadership structure. In 1960, she organized the founding meeting of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC or SNCC, with a vision to form an organization that encouraged all of its members to learn to be leaders in the struggle for black liberation. SNCC was among the groups organizing sit-ins, freedom rides, challenging racial segregation in interstate transit, and voter registration in Mississippi and Alabama. The organization became increasingly radical over the course of the 1960s. Politicians love to cherry-pick quotes from activists, activists who won wide respect and moral authority in the eyes of the public through decades of dedication and struggle, actively participating in the social movements that actually brought about change. Politicians hope that by quoting activists like Baker, some of that respect and moral authority will come their way too. The problem for people like Biden, however, is that activists like Baker understood that the real change we need doesn't come handed down to us from whoever is in the White House. Activists like Baker understood and lived the idea that society will only change when we all rise together to make it change through our active participation in and the ownership of our struggles. By quoting Baker, Biden is continuing the tradition of Democratic Party politicians pretending to be part of social movements, as opposed to what they actually do, which is try to take them over or crush them. What Baker would want us to remember and what Biden would like us to forget is that we can't just put our faith in the Democrats every election year and hope they'll fix things for us. As tens of thousands of Black Lives Matter protesters in recent months have seen with their own eyes, we are the ones who make the change. Ella Baker said it best in a speech at a Puerto Rico solidarity rally in 1974, a speech that you're less likely to hear quoted by Mr. Biden. Quote, You and I cannot be free in America or anyone else where there is capitalism and imperialism until we can get people to recognize that they themselves have to make the struggle and have to make the fight for freedom every day in the year, every year, until they win it. Kodak and Trump playing with taxpayers' dollars. Recently, the Trump administration announced a new development in U.S. pharmaceuticals. 
the Kodak Film Company is expected to be given a $765 million loan to help launch a new wing of the company producing generic pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical ingredients. This is through the Defense Production Act, which allows the president to control the production and distribution of scarce resources that are essential to the national defense. Kodak Pharmaceuticals will take on the role of producing 25% of America's demand for key pharmaceutical ingredients and components that are in short supply and are essential to the U.S. supply chain. This seems like it could be a logical transition for the company, since photo development heavily relies on synthesizing and formulating high-purity chemical compounds and processes, similarly to how much of the pharmaceutical industry creates drug ingredients. This expertise with chemicals helped generate great profits for Kodak in the 70s through the 90s. But since the rise of digital film and cameras, Kodak has been struggling to remain relevant and profitable and filed for bankruptcy in 2012. But what's really behind the partnership between Kodak and the Trump administration? Is it for the health and well-being of patients dependent on the drugs these pharmaceutical ingredients help to create? Does it really make sense for a company specializing in film-developing chemicals to transition to pharmaceutical ingredients? If this is supposed to help fight COVID, do we really want a startup in pharmaceuticals to get rich off of our tax dollars? Since this announcement, Kodak has come under fire for allegations of insider trading by their executives. The day before the news broke of the $765 million governmental deal, a large number of their stocks were brought up. Once the announcement came, Kodak's stocks began skyrocketing, making a lot of money for shareholders, including Kodak's executives. It's clear that this is yet another money-making scheme for the ruling class of this country, and not a plan devised to help make drugs more accessible for patients in need. Belarus. Go. Do not come back. On August 16th, it was under this slogan that tens of thousands gathered, even hundreds of thousands, according to some of the demonstrators in Minsk, capital of Belarus, with flowers, balloons, and flags. The protest movement began before the August 9th presidential election because the president dictator Alexander Lushenko excluded rival candidates and finally allowed only the wife of one of them, Svetlana Tiknovskaya, to run. The movement exploded above all with the announcement of the results, 80% for Lukashenko, 10% for his opponent, which were considered to be obviously rigged. The protest wave does not seem to have stopped despite the desperate maneuvers of a leader who has clung to power since 1994. There's been a harsh repression, thousands of arrests and two deaths, accompanied by some signs of appeasement, but neither claim the anger. On the contrary, the protests have spread all over the cities of the country, and spectacularly, the working class has emerged on the scene. Many businesses, including large ones, are the gathering places for assemblies of workers, where representatives of management and power are booed and are experiencing strikes against the regime. Squealing, crackling, and explosion. It's been a rocky road for Lukashenko. Ten years ago, the already suspicious election of his fourth term brought tens of thousands of people to the streets. 
they were overcome by a harsh repression. In the last elections, in 2015, the Russian intervention in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea frightened the opposition, which hardly showed itself during the campaign. This time, in 2020, it's a different story. Three candidates joined the opposition's ranks. Tespicalo, ex-diplomat turned capitalist of new technologies. Babarika, ex-boss of Belgazprom Bank linked to Gazprom. And Tikhanovsky, an investor who became popular via YouTube. Prevented from appearing, arrest invalidation of applications, their wives took over. And Lukashenko, who was then at odds with Putin, accused him of being behind them. Only Svetlana Tikhanovskaya was finally validated as a candidate. She was seen as the wife of a small businessman who stood up to a bully of a dictator who was in power for more than 25 years and claimed, among other things, that vodka was the best remedy for coronavirus. She gathered many at her meetings on the basis of opposition to the regime, the desire to improve the country's economic situation, and in the atmosphere of premen, or change, music by Victor Tsoi, a singer adored by young people at the time of perestroika. Along with two ex-candidates, she gathered tens of thousands of people at the end of July in Minsk with the slogan, I or we are 97%. Then came the results of the August 9th election, 80% for Lukashenko and menacing tanks in the streets. The opposition claims to have garnered 45% of the vote and won the election. Tiknovskaya, whose husband is in prison, called for calm which did nothing to prevent spontaneous riots in Minsk or in many provincial towns. Harsh repression, internet limitations, and popular turmoil have put cities under siege. Tiknovskaya was escorted to Lithuania. The opposition figures seem to have served as catalysts for the political revolt, rather than organizers of the mobilizations in the streets and workplaces. If organizations did take part in the mobilizations, their visibility seems to have been low or non-existent, unlike during so-called color revolutions in the 2000s, or that of Maidan Square in Kiev, Ukraine in 2014, which was led by opposition currency or personalities. In short, we are seeing a form of uprising that seems in tune with the times, from the United States to Algeria via Hong Kong. The regime's red and green flag confronted with worker strikes. For 10 years, as economic difficulties hit the Lukashenko regime, with less support from Russian money, attacks against the popular classes have multiplied, and in particular, the generalization of fixed-term contracts. Demagogically, the regime waves the threat of privatization and layoffs if the opposition wins, even though it has been implementing these itself for years. Before backing off, Thanks to a small-scale mobilization of the opposition in 2017, Lukashenko planned to impose a tax on the unemployed who work less than six months a year. He did impose a new labor code unfavorable to workers last year. Unemployment and part-time work imposed by a government unable to deal with the pandemic most certainly have contributed to making the regime very popular. For a week now since the suspicious electoral victory, there are strikes, and the whole world is watching. There are videos on a large number of sites and media. While it's difficult to determine how extensive these are, 
and even more difficult to know how they began, it is evident that they are multiplying and taking root and impacting historic strongholds of the working class in Belarus, such as the National Tractor Factory, MTZ, which has been the pride of the regime since it emerged from Soviet Union. It seems that independent trade unions are playing a role in the workers' mobilizations. On August 12th, following the turmoil, a Belarusian Congress of Democratic Trade Unions, BKDP, an independent section of the state-affiliated union that is believed to group 9,000 workers, targeted the regime and called for an end to the repression and for freedom for the thousands of demonstrators arrested without calling for a strike to avoid dismissals. This did not prevent some of its leaders from being arrested. On August 16th, the Belarusian Congress of Democratic Trade Unions and others called for the creation of strike committees in companies and a national strike committee while promising its assistance. Some committees already claim to exist, notably those set up at the Belaruskali Potash Mines, which employ 12,000 workers. In videos of employee assemblies or in press releases from the independent unions, democratic demands linked to the election and opposition to Lukashenko seem to dominate. But these also mingle with economic demands, particularly among public employees who represent 45% of Belarusian employees. Quote, Lukashenko must leave, free elections, release the arrested demonstrators, the right to strike, end privatizations and precarious contracts, the right to assemble, unquote. Workers have demanded that their bosses oppose Lukashenko, and there have been scenes of humiliation for bosses or supporters of the regime during the strike and workers' assemblies that were attended by bosses, mayors, and even Lukashenko in person on the morning of August 17th. The workers of different factories disrupted his speech, which ended with cries of ukodai, that is to say, leave. What prospects for the working class? These strikes seem to have disrupted Lukashenko's calculations, who initially hoped to rely on using pure repression. They have forced his hand, leading him on Friday to release 2,000 of the 6,000 to 7,000 jailed, mistreated, and even tortured demonstrators, and to change his tone in the face of the workers. When Lukashenko, feeling more or less assured of Russian support, sometimes retracts some of the brutal repression, a part of the country's elites, businessmen, public figures, and even one and then two former ministers, have showed up in the demonstrations. Strikes and workers' mobilizations are certainly an enormous asset for the success of popular mobilization, because they are feared by power on the one hand and are an encouragement for the demonstrators on the other. Indeed, the population seems to want the dictator's departure much more fiercely than is expressed by opposition figures, especially the former candidates for election. The European Union and Russia do not share any of the popular hopes of the opposition to the politically authoritarian and economically incompetent regime in Belarus. These regimes could assert themselves in support of the people or of the Belarusian opposition. The Western press is now asserting itself in support of the opposition, and the EU has announced sanctions against the leaders of the regime. Putin, on the other hand, recognized the election a few days ago, 
whereas Lukashenko, like other politicians in the region before him, has been able, even in the recent past, to hesitate between the East and the West, Russia and the EU, and isn't Russia's best ally. Putin especially is grappling with a massive, tenacious popular mobilization in Khabarovsk, a city located in the Russian Far East on the Chinese border. Could a misstep on his part ignite gunpowder all over Russia? Putin is already offering military assistance to Lukashenko, the effects of which have been seen in Syria, Ukraine, Georgia, and elsewhere. And this is a risky bet because Lukashenko struggling with opposition movements since coming to power and losing face due to the pandemic, seems well discredited after more than 25 years. Maintaining him in power could cause more inconvenience than stability. Support the regime or the opposition. Preserve what exists or bet on the alternative. Every great power is making its calculations on the backs of the people especially the workers, of Belarus, and none of them has shown in recent years or decades that they take the working people into consideration, other than for the benefit of their own money or geopolitical interests. And Ukraine is the most blatant example of this. From Minsk to Belarus, holding fast to the working class's political interests within the framework of the current strikes and demonstrations can only be done against all of the enemies of the Belarusian workers that have invaded the political scene. If these strikes are massive, they open a different perspective, not a choice between the regime and the opposition and its hypocritical imperialist godfathers. A noteworthy fact, the press and Western commentators seem to have rediscovered the decisive impact of worker strikes on the people's political destiny. To date, everyone in the European Union seems to be delighted with the Lukashenko opposition movement, marked by these striking workers. What will the leaders of the European Union, including Macron, the French president, say if these strikes spread? Drilling in the Arctic, capital reigns supreme. On August 17th, the Trump administration opened up the coastal plain of Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWR, to drilling, a goal the oil industry and some politicians have been trying to achieve for the last 40 years. The Department of Interior approved drilling in this 1.5 million acre region that is home to the polar bear, a vulnerable species with a decreasing population the porcupine caribou and animal local tribes depended on for subsistence and other wildlife. This plan comes at a time when oil production in Alaska has been dwindling over the last three decades, according to U.S. Energy Department data. And the world market is currently swimming in excess oil, with crude oil prices low and oil companies slashing their spending. Additionally, the area has only been tested once for its fossil fuel extraction potential, and there has yet to be seismic testing of the area. There's little infrastructure, equipment, or electricity for drilling, and it would be very expensive to begin extracting oil. Unless there is a massive oil boom with barrel prices increasing enough for oil companies to find it economically advantageous to launch massive and expensive exploration projects, it is unlikely anyone will be drilling in the Arctic anytime soon. Some big banks have also promised not to finance drilling in the Arctic due to public pressure over the concerns of climate change. 
So this may just be a political move meant to show the current administration's ability to scale back environmental protections before the November election. The Anwar has been a protected area since 1980, a victory fought for by environmentalists. This move to loosen hard-won environmental protections was conveniently pushed through right before the election without even a pretense or care or concern for preserving these lands or preventing further climate change. Given oil extraction probably won't even occur in the Anwar for another eight years, if at all, this action demonstrates the lengths politicians will go to to show their power and priorities. Regardless of the motivations, whether political or in the interests of the oil industry, or both, one message is clear. The interests of capital reign supreme over protecting the planet and the life on it. Fear and Mistrust, Vaccine Production in the U.S. A Gallup poll recently found that 35% of Americans wouldn't get a COVID-19 vaccine if it were available right now at no cost to them. Because of a whirlwind of misinformation from the Trump administration, other political figures, and media, many Americans are saying they will elect to not receive a vaccination because of their mistrust in the system that's creating the vaccine, or outright denial that the virus even exists. This is the state of things in a society that questions science. When political leaders question science, other people are discounting medical advice and research, which puts themselves and others at risk. In one way, these people have a point. It's hard to believe that there will be a safe and effective vaccine by early next year. The process of developing vaccines typically takes a decade, and what companies are doing right now is trying to compress all of the research and work necessary into less than a year. Different companies in different countries are competing against each other to be the first with a vaccine so they can be the ones to profit off of the pandemic. This is crazy and sick. COVID is a global disaster, and we should be using the coordinated research of the best laboratories in the world to find a solution. Instead, companies in the U.S., Russia, Germany, and other countries are working independently of each other. The U.S. government has handed over $8 billion to pharmaceutical and biotech companies through Trump's Operation Warp Speed to develop a COVID-19 vaccine as soon as possible. But this is not a hot rod race. This way of doing research creates the perfect environment for fear and mistrust in the population. And while there are conspiracy theories about the coronavirus that are getting a lot of attention, it's not the science that is the proven enemy of the people. It's the ruling class of this country and the globe that only care about expanding their profits, no matter the cost in lives. There's no doubt that we need protection from this deadly virus, so we need a vaccine. But the only way people will trust the treatment and cures that are available will be if biotech and pharmaceutical research and production are under the control of the workers who have the knowledge to produce safe products, not under the control of the bosses, government, and CEOs of a profit-centered industry. Baltimore, deadly explosion in aging infrastructure. Just days after a massive explosion in Beirut, Baltimore residents were shaken by an explosion that killed two, injured seven, and flattened three row homes. The exact cause of the blast in Baltimore isn't known yet, 
but the primary suspect is aging gas lines. One resident reported that he thought he smelled gas before he left his house at 6 a.m. When he returned three hours later, his house had been blown to bits by the explosion. All he found was rubble. Across the United States, in the last 19 years, there have been nearly 600 so-called incidents or explosions involving gas distribution lines where someone was killed or hospitalized. From 2000 to 2019, there have been over 1,000 people who have been seriously injured or killed in similar disasters. In Maryland, natural gas leaks are common, with nearly two dozen discovered each day. This has been sharply increasing because of aging infrastructure that was built in the 1950s and 1960s. The private utilities company Baltimore Gas and Electric, BG&E, knows that at least 15% of its gas distribution system is outdated. Half of its transmission mains are over 50 years old, and some pipe joints are still made out of jute, a vegetable fiber. More common are weak iron joints that are far outdated. For BG&E, the longer they use old infrastructure, the more profits they'll get. For the rest of us, our lives are in danger from infrastructure that delivers essential services, but we have no say over how it's designed or maintained. Energy for cooking and heating should be designed with safety as the priority, and it should be guaranteed to every person regardless of ability to pay. That's not on the table for BG&E or other private energy companies. The power to make that happen would require all of us, the people who live in these communities and who work on the utility lines, to have control over them and have the financial and technical means to make the necessary changes. In other words, we'd have to organize to overthrow private owners like BG and E. Arizona school teachers and staff fight back against COVID. Quote, at some point, we are going to have to come up with an acceptable casualty rate, and nobody wants to have that conversation, unquote. These were the words of a school board member at a small Arizona district commenting on the insane idea that schools should reopen despite the district and state not meeting the criteria laid out by their own state's Department of Public Health. So rather than just accept the risks involved for both themselves and students, teachers, and other education workers in that district decided enough was enough. They were going to use the best method they have for stopping the madness, refusing to work. The actions of education workers in J.O. Combs School District outside of Phoenix forced the district to halt its reopening plans. By late Friday afternoon, 109 of 600 education workers had already called in sick, effectively disabling the ability of the district to function. Later that day, the superintendent admitted that the schools didn't have the staff to function effectively and canceled all plans for in-person learning. This wasn't an officially called strike, just an informal action by teachers and other workers themselves. While only a small district, and even though the sick-outers are only about 20% of the school staff, this action gives us a sense of the potential power of workers. We make society function in schools, offices, utilities, trains, buses, factories, mines, stores, construction, restaurants, and thousands of other workplaces. We can save lives, even when our political leaders don't care. 
We don't have to leave these decisions up to them. If only 20% of the workers in one workplace can bring the system to a halt, imagine what would happen if half of us refused to work, or three quarters. We have power. Let's organize ourselves and use it. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. Thanks for listening.